there is frankly nothing in the world I like to see as much in a tight stock that I like as a large short position. This episode of Mining Stock Education is brought to you by Oren Resources. Oren is a junior exploration company with the appetite of a major, focused on finding the next globally significant discovery to create enormous potential upside for shareholders. It's one of the most aggressive exploration companies pursuing high-grade, scalable gold and copper deposits and has a premier seven-project portfolio including its two flagships, Committee Bay in the Arctic and Sombrero in Peru. With Oren's unparalleled technical team and highly experienced management with a history of success and advanced and monetizing exploration assets, Oren has been called one of the best in the junior exploration sector. Oren trades on the TSX and NYSE under the ticker AUG. To learn more, go to orenresources.com. That's A-U-R-Y-N resources.com. Thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Bill Powers, and this is Mining Stock Education. If you just found this show or you've been listening for a while and haven't yet subscribed, I encourage you to do so. And if you listened on iTunes or one of the other podcast applications, uh, I would appreciate it if you could rate and review the show if this has been of benefit to you. Well, on my desk, I have a number of papers. My wife wishes I would keep my office desk a little cleaner, but it's organized exactly the way I like it. And on one of those papers, it says the name Rick Rule, and I have the opportunity to interview Rick on this show uh, periodically. So as I come across questions in my own investing in this sector, I write down those questions. Uh, so when I do have the opportunity to ask Rick, I can ask him those questions. So Rick uh, Rule joins me today. Rick, thank you for coming back on Mining Stock Education. And my first question is, if you're sitting down for coffee with someone that's newer to the resource sector... How would you explain to them how you profit from the illiquidity and the inefficiency of the junior mining sector? Well, that's a great question, and let me begin by a commercial endorsement. I uh, I really enjoy mining stock education. I think you're doing great work, and I'm delighted and proud to be part of it. So let me begin by flattering you. Thank you. Um, moving on to the question, um, the first thing to know is that our sector uh, mining stocks are probably as volatile and cyclical a sector as exists on the planet. So they're a speculator's paradise. In more specific response to the question, though, in smaller market capitalization companies, the distribution of information on a global basis is very, very inefficient, which means that people who are willing to put more work into the sector and discipline themselves to use the cyclicality the volatility and the amount of misinformation uh, to speculate stand a much better chance than they do in industries that are less volatile, less cyclical, and circumstances where information is distributed more ubiquitously. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns uh, as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks, too. The circumstance of my life is that I've participated in the sector for 40 years, and it has been extraordinarily generous to me. 
Um, I, of course, believe I deserve that market's generosity because of the work I've put in and the discipline I've exercised in my own portfolio. Rick, when it comes to knowledge and the inefficiencies, do you seek out, before you invest in a company, what's being said about a particular company in the chat rooms? And of course, this question deals more with the last 15 years or so since the rise of the internet, or do you have a researcher kind of give you a summary of what's being said about a particular company? No, I don't. Um, most of what I see in the chat rooms, 90% of what I see in the chat rooms, uh, including discussions, frankly, of my own videos, uh, is really blather from the lame, the halt, and the blind. <laughs> um, there are, uh, in all areas of human endeavor, uh, there are serially successful performers. They might be analysts, they might be company CEOs, or they might be investors. And I'm much more inclined in a circumstance where both knowledge and paradigm uh, are pretty closely uh, controlled and constrained. I'm much more interested in the opinion of people that I understand and respect than I am the, this is going to make me sound horribly elitist, but what the hell, uh, that I am the opinion of the great unwashed. Recently, your friend Eric Sprott has been a proponent of getting back with the uptick rule. And as I understand it, this would not allow shorting for the venture, Toronto Venture stocks, if they're sub about a $250 million market cap, unless that stock is in an uptrend or at least trending sideways. Uh, would you agree with that? I mean, what's your thoughts here? Uh, I would not agree with that. Uh, I am very fond of Eric as a human being, and I'm frankly in awe of him as a speculator. Uh, I, I think in this circumstance, he's wrong. Uh, I believe in free markets. There is frankly nothing in the world I like to see as much in a tight stock that I like as a large short position. That stock that has to be bought it's up to the fight between the longs and the shorts, what price they get filled at. So if there's a company with 50 million shares outstanding and five or six million are short, um, in effect, if the longs are right and the shorts are wrong, the shorts are going to be delivered a religious experience. Uh, I've authored a few of those experiences, quite frankly, in my past. So in this particular circumstance, I like unfettered free markets. I like freedom of, freedom of speech, if you will, as expressed by check and a risk. So the proponents of bringing this rule back would say, well, we're eliminating predatory behavior. Or if you have a billionaire or someone with hundreds of millions of dollars, what they could do in short selling a, a 10 to $30 million market cap company could wipe out that company and cause a, a avalanche of selling. And you would just say, let the free markets be the free markets? Yeah, unless they, uh, unless they eliminated buys on upticks. You know, <laughs> what's good for the goose is good for the gander. As I say... Um, you and I both know, Bill, that most of the stocks on the TSX Venture Resource Index deserve to be shorted. Uh, they have positive enterprise values and negative net present values uh, on the high-quality companies, and there's lots of those too, backed by good people with good projects. If I'm long, there's nothing in the world I like more than a good short position. It's stock that has to be bought. 
I, I remember years ago uh, being very involved in the building of market capitalizations, wonderful stocks that actually became cults. I'm thinking about BIMA, First Quantum, Silver Standard, Pan American, uh, companies like that in my youth. And during the period of time when we were building those market capitalizations and those constituencies, we were subjected to uh, fairly frequent bear raids by the trading pros. And in several circumstances, the most, the most astonishing, the most dramatic was in first quantum. Uh, we delivered those organized shorts, the sort of Jersey City boys. Uh, we delivered them truly religious experiences. There's nothing in the world quite as ugly as having a sort of uh, $2 short in a $4.50 bid, no offer market. I see, I see, I see your point. <laughs> Rick, one of the questions I get, I do give out my email, and if a listener wants to reach me, you can do so at bill at miningstockeducation.com. And one of the feedbacks I've gotten from a listener is, uh, why do you focus on and discuss private placements? Because probably most of your listeners are not even accredited investors anyway. So my question for you is, I have my own answer, but I'd like to hear your answer. What should non-accredited investors know about private placements and how they might affect a potential investment in this sector? Well, certainly the private placement investor in a well-structured private placement has at least two advantages over the normal speculator. The first is that a well-structured private placement is almost invariably well-timed. The money that a sensible, involved management team raises is raised to answer an unanswered question. That's important. It's important that you understand what the money being raised in a private placement is for, whether or not you participate in the, in the placement. And if it's used simply because they can raise money or because they've run out of money, don't participate. If, however, it's raised to answer an unanswered question, to, to uh, complete a preliminary economic assessment, to complete a pre-feasibility study, to complete a feasibility study, to answer the third dimension question, is a surface anomaly extend at depth? The timeliness of the capital contribution to answer an unanswered question and the investor's focus on the outcome, the value created by the data obtained as a consequence of that investment, gives that investor or that speculator a focus that isn't often present with aftermarket speculators whose participation seems to center around got a hunch, bet a bunch. The second advantage that the private placement investor in a well-structured private placement has is the warrant. He or she has the right but not the obligation to buy more equity at a fixed price after the unanswered question has been answered. What the speculator who isn't able to participate in the private placement needs to know is that the speculator in the placement has him or her at the disadvantage of being able to exercise that warrant. The second thing they need to know is that after the hold on the private placement uh, comes off, in the United States 12 months, in Canada 4 months, in Australia 24 hours, uh, the stock that was issued in the context of private placement becomes float. It becomes free trading. And particularly in Canada, 
there is a tendency among private placement investors when they obtain a warrant or a half warrant to sell down the shares when they become free trading or sometimes short in anticipation of them becoming free trading so that they get the warrant, the leveraged upside, if you will, for free. Uh, so non-private placement investors should anticipate market weakness uh, on the release of private placement stock or depending on the places in the private placement uh, as much as four to six weeks before assuming that there's a borrow available in that private placement stock. That really shouldn't matter uh, unless the aftermarket participant is more of a trader than an investor. What really should matter rather than near-term price trends, of course, is the juxtaposition between price and value. That is, did the private placement generate information that causes you to believe that the stock is selling for more than its current price or less than its current price? But you and I have discussed before, Bill, the fact that uh, price information is easy to obtain and it seems relevant. Price information isn't relevant in the absence of an opinion on value, but value information requires much more work and as a consequence is <laughs> looked at less frequently. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Otis Gold Corp. is a gold development and exploration company with quality projects in the pro-mining state of Idaho. Otis's flagship Kilgore project has a resource of 961,000 gold ounces, and its recently published preliminary economic assessment demonstrated an impressive post-tax IRR of 53% at $1,500 gold. In addition to the significant expansion potential at Kilgore, Otis is exploring its highly prospective Oakley project. This Carlin-type gold deposit already has an inferred resource and previous near-surface drilling inter at 123 meters of 0.69 grams per ton gold. Otis Gold Corp. trades in New York under the ticker OGLDF and in Toronto under the ticker OOO, that's triple O. To learn more, go to otisgold.com. That's otisgold.com. Rick, I'm a U.S. investor, as are you, and I was talking to a fellow U.S. investor who is doing less and less private placements on the Toronto Venture Exchange because there is a disadvantage for us. And one advantage, disadvantage is that we, when that four-month hold that you referenced comes off, it takes us several weeks to get uh, a legend removed to where we could even sell our shares if we wanted. And there's just a lot more paperwork as well. Uh, what's your perspective as a U.S. investor investing in the TSXV and do you feel at a disadvantage to Canadians investing in the TSXV through private placements? One of the things that we at Sprott try to do uh, when a company is attempting to induce us to participate directly and on behalf of clients in Canadian private placements is to influence the language on the restricted legend. There are two phrases which can be used on restricted lessons. One is have sold where you have to give notice to the company and the transfer agent uh, that you have sold and that you have sold without preparing a U.S. market and without knowingly selling to a U.S. investor. We prefer language on a restrictive uh, legend that says we'll sell, that we intend to sell but haven't sold, and we don't have any idea who we're selling the stock to because we can't in a blind exchange through the Toronto Stock Exchange, but that we have made no effort 
to prepare a market in the United States or induce an American to buy the stock. By doing that, you you remove uh, the necessity to provide an attorney's opinion to a transfer agent that doesn't necessarily have any incentive to act in a timely basis to restrict the legend. So one of the things that an American investor has to do is participate before they write the check in negotiating the language that will appear on the restrictive legend. And one of the services that Sprott offers its clients is the sort of knowledge and in certain circumstances, at least, uh, the market power to cause that to occur. The You need to know, in a very cynical sense, that the half-life of your influence with a company in a private placement uh, goes away after the check cashes. So if you're investing in a company where you as Sprott as an entity did not influence what would be written on that legend, would you then, part of your due diligence would be reading the legend before you invested in a private placement? Oh, certainly. Certainly. Yeah. Those um, those long private placement memorandums that you get uh, are always good reading. Uh, <laughs> and I would advise anybody participating in a private placement to suffer through all 40 pages of them. 46 pages are cover your ass, which is basically where the issuer says to you, uh, absent raping your firstborn, male or female, uh, we can't be held accountable for our actions. Um, Okay, so suffer through all that, figure out what they can do to you. But there are probably four pages within that 40 pages that are really worth reading, and one of them has to do with legending. And there are uh, procedures that one can put in place, assuming that that the company needs the money and would like this subscriber or this band of subscribers to participate, that can serve to make your life easier later in the process. Rick, uh, you've referred to yourself, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as uh, basically a mining loan shark. And uh, my question on the lending side of Sprott is, What's that boundary between when you're no longer a partner, even though you're one giving the loan, because you want the mining company to be successful so they can repay the loan, and then it kind of transitions into maybe you're a predator. And we see this in the royalty industry where um, the royalty companies know that if their royalty is too encumbering, the mine's not going to be profitable, and ultimately they're not going to make enough money. Can you talk about how you discern and how you navigate that boundary? Certainly, as soon as the check cashes, we're partners. Um, we're partners. There is There are sometimes some fairly harsh negotiations before the check is written. But when the check cashes, assuming that we're treated honorably, uh, we try to be the issuer's best friend. Probably 40% of the loans that we have ever written uh, run into problems during some point in time in the loan. As you know, it's not impossible that a big construction project like a mine, a half a million, a half a billion dollar project, could run into some difficulties or run over budget. And if a borrower calls me up and says, uh, Rick, uh, I, I need to talk to you about our progress. I feel good about my payment this month. I feel okay next month. But three months out, it feels pretty wobbly. And I want to tell you myself what the problems are and what we're doing to address it. I don't want you to read about the northern miner. We'll go to war for that guy. 
We'll do whatever we could do for that guy. We'll extend the loan. I mean, we'll charge for extending the loan. Uh, we'll restructure, reschedule a loan. We'll do whatever. We're absolutely supportive allies because we understand that this is an uncertain game. If, however, Bill, I don't get a call and I don't get a check, that is if the uh, management team either doesn't know because they're too unwitting or too stupid to know, or if they do know and they don't inform me and they just let me have an unpleasant surprise, uh, then our relationship becomes very different. If we're treated honorably, we will be honorable. We are not a loan-to-own shop. We are a, a shop that tries to rent capital at rates of return that are appropriate to the risk that we're taking. Rick, this is a question I've been, this next question is something I've been pondering for a while. In the day of social media, especially in the last 10 years with the rise of Twitter, and a lot of mining executives are becoming active on Twitter, commenting not just on their company, but I've seen them comment and even maybe disparagingly talk about other mining CEOs, perhaps sharing opinions that could be uh, quite controversial. They're a public figure. So my question to you is, as a shareholder, and you're observing, and just in industry practice in general, when you're seeing a mining CEO get quite vocal towards other mining companies and also opinions not related to the mining industry when they're publicly leading this company, what are your thoughts here? Are there any boundaries, perhaps? I don't think so. Um, I am always interested in that kind of information. Just as I suggested that we vet resumes to their appropriateness to the task at hand, uh, I'm interested if a mining CEO is making comments about something, whether or not I consider him or her to be a credible source of information. Um, most of the opinion that I see in discussion groups is just that. You know, it's really a very little value. Uh, if you assemble all of it to sort of get uh, what might be described as market paradigm, that can be useful as background information. What I've found is that most of the CEOs who have made me a lot of money, um, you know, I'm thinking Bob Quartermain or Clive Johnson or Robert Friedland or Lucas Lundin, are in the first instance extremely positive people and unlikely to denigrate other people. I've also found them to be usually far too busy in their own affairs to be particularly interested in what other people are doing. Uh, Ross Beatty once told me it was easy to be Ross Beatty because the whole universe, his whole universe revolved around himself. <laughs> uh, I am very, very interested in what a Ross Beatty or a Bob Quartermain would have to say about, as an example, Canadian government policy towards Aboriginal groups, uh, where those spokespeople have had 30 years' experience on the subject at hand, and where I think that their policy prescriptions are probably better than government policy prescriptions. I'm extremely interested in that. Uh, and I, uh, I seek that out and copy it and distribute it to other people within Sprott. 
This question comes out of a recent interview I had on this show where uh, the gentleman is very bullish on gold but believes in a little over a decade that cryptocurrencies will replace gold as the go-to hedge. What are your thoughts here? Is that a possibility? I don't think so. Uh, I think what really interests me in in the discussion is the intersection between cryptos, which is to say the utilization of distributed ledger uh, technology and blockchain technology to uh, facilitate the ownership and exchange of gold. I mean, I certainly believe that there is a future in having private cryptocurrencies that compete with government currencies. And I'm a consumer of currencies, so the idea that there would be 30, 30 different currencies attempting to offer me enough utility that I use them in preference to other currencies would be a good thing. Uh, In my wallet today, there's pound sterling dollars and Canadian dollars uh, because I operate and do business in all three places and I'm about to travel. To the extent that there were more mediums of exchange competing to offer me as a businessman utility, that would be a very good thing. When I look at the cryptocurrencies that abound today that are untethered, which is to say that their value is the network rather than any other form of utility, uh, a couple things are beginning to trouble me. Um, One is that the volatility in them, which attracts speculators and traders, makes them inefficient mediums of exchange. The very upside and downside volatility that one examples that one evidence is, is an example in Bitcoin means that if you buy something with Bitcoin, you really don't know what you've paid in more common currencies, which discourages people from using it to buy things, and it also discourages uh, vendors from accepting it in return for goods and services. The second thing that troubles me about the crypto world currency, and I admit that I'm an old man and I trouble easily, uh, is that one of the utilities that was offered up that people availed themselves of with cryptocurrencies was their anonymity. The fact that you could use cryptos in an unconstrained fashion. Uh, So, as an example, if you were living in a currency-controlled country like China, you could buy Bitcoin in yuan and sell it for dollars and effectively get yourself out of a blocked currency into an unblocked currency. Many of the adherents of cryptocurrency looking to broaden adoption of cryptos have asked that these uh, mediums of exchange, these cryptos, uh, become uh, more broadly regulated which seems to me to obviate one of their key utilities. Uh, I don't believe that cryptos uh, untethered to precious metals will compete with precious metals ultimately, although I do believe that they'll compete fairly vigorously among themselves and also to other unconstrained uh, government-issued fiat currencies. As I say, the... uh, the thing that really interests me is our own and competitors' efforts to use distributed ledger technology to make gold ownership more efficient. Gold and precious metals really are uniquely good forms of money. Uh, they aren't promises to pay. They constitute payment in and of itself 
in and of themselves. They are stores of value in addition to being uh, mediums of exchange. And gold's very franchised. The fact that it's been viewed as a store of value and a medium of exchange for 6,000 years means that it has the same uh, franchise or network value that a crypto would. Uh, and for those reasons, I think that the acceptance that cryptos are creating in the market for other mechanisms of exchange will ultimately, over time, be good for precious metals rather than harmful to precious metals. Rick, uh, as we conclude, last time you were on the, the show, you gave out your email address and offered to rate uh, listeners' profiles. I know there was kind of a backlog on that. It was taking a little longer than expected because of the inflow you had previously received. Can you give us an update on where you're at with that? Yeah, we have the back. I think we're two days away from um, <laughs> exhausting the backlog. I'd like to uh, take this opportunity to do two things. First of all, uh, uh, apologize to those people who are inconvenienced by our backlog. It took as much as six weeks to respond, but also to reiterate the offer. Uh, we are delighted to rate your uh, subscribers and listeners uh, natural resource stock portfolios. Please don't send me Walmart uh, or Unilever, uh, things like that. Many people do, uh, but People who send me an email, rankings, R-A-N-K-I-N-G-S, at Sprott Global, S-P-R-O-T-T-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. If those people will include both the name and the symbol of the company in the text, not as an attachment, which our computer people won't allow me to open, uh, we will rank on a 1 to 10 basis the stocks that we know about, at least in the portfolio, and also, where appropriate, attach brief comments. Uh, and we will return that by return email. Excellent. Well, Rick, I always appreciate your insight. Thanks for coming on Mining Stock Education. Much appreciated. My pleasure. And one more piece of unsolicited uh, fan mail. Uh, I, I'm really enjoying your service. I think you're doing a great job for your people. Keep it up. Thank you for listening to this Mining Stock Education podcast. Please subscribe and share with like-minded investors. Visit us on the web at miningstockeducation.com for more resources on precious metals and natural resource investing. At our website, you can also sign up for our free newsletter for interview transcripts, stock picks, and more. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.